You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 8, verses 48 through to 59. If you're using the Church Pew Bible, it's page uh, 7. Five, six, and as you look that passage up, let me try and uh, set something of the context. At the beginning of chapter eight, Jesus has begun uh, teaching in the temple. Uh, his teaching has uh, continued the theme of self-disclosure. Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. But from time to time throughout his teaching, and increasingly so, the religious leaders, John calls them the Jews, the religious leaders interact with him. And we see increasingly something of their uh, difficulty in pigeonholing Jesus. Who are you, they ask. They want to try and squeeze him into some kind of compartment that they recognize. Uh, and in addition to that, something of their antipathy, their hatred towards Jesus, a theme that is developed throughout the gospel, uh, comes increasingly to the surface. So we are breaking into uh, this uh, debate that is taking place between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in verse 46 we read, The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not demon-possessed or not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Uh, Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet fifty years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am At this they picked up stones to stone him, 
But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I want to ask uh, this morning if you have an obsessive organizational passion, a place for everything, and everything its place. This is when the wives look at the husbands and the husbands look at the wives and say, you don't fit. But clearly, without some kind of organization, life would be pretty chaotic. We like to put things in their proper place, into categories that we're familiar with. But that's not always possible. Uh, There are times when our puny mental pigeonholes prove inadequate and we need to look beyond them. And that was something that the religious leaders of Jesus' day refused to do. And it's something that many people today refuse to do when faced with Jesus' self-disclosure as he draws the curtains back. And uh, in John's Gospel, Jesus' self-disclosure takes two principal forms. First, we are confronted by Jesus' miracles. John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs because they point back to Jesus. They tell us something about him. So, for example, after the feeding uh, of the 5,000, Jesus says, uh, I'm the true bread capable of satisfying the deepest human spiritual appetite. The healing of the blind man points to Jesus as the one who is indeed the light of the world, the source of spiritual enlightenment. So that throughout the gospel, we see Jesus planting a a mini forest of signs that point to him and that say, this is who I am. This is why I have come. But secondly, and even more explicitly, Jesus' self-disclosure is found in the teaching that gathers itself around the famous I am statements that he makes. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. And the construction of these I am statements is extremely interesting. The original sentence construction carries the meaning I and uniquely I am thus making these claims earth-shattering in their implications. I and uniquely I am the source of spiritual sustenance, of spiritual enlightenment, of spiritual life, the way to the Father, and so on. And so in this way, through his teaching, Jesus is drawing back curtain after curtain, Even Danellum doesn't have enough curtains for the number of curtains that Jesus draws back and says, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. So that far from hiding his identity, Jesus discloses it. Now, uh, how do the Jews react to all of this? Man's response to God's revelation will either harden 
or humble his heart? Those are the two options. It will harden or humble his heart. Uh, When Jesus' self-disclosure is rejected by the religious leaders, what happens? Something akin to what Paul describes in Romans 1 when man rejects and seeks to suppress God's knowledge, God's self-disclosure throughout uh, the created order, his thinking becomes futile and foolish hearts are darkened, says Paul. Well, confronted with the progressive revelation of our Lord Jesus, the religious leaders in our passage with a futile thinking and darkened heart, see in verse 48, you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. Jesus, you are both an enemy of the Jews, a heretic and a hand puppet of Satan. Uh, that's the pigeonhole, or these are the pigeonholes into which we are attempting to press you. You see, when men reject Jesus' self-disclosure, they need to find some kind of category to push Jesus into, something that will give them uh, the freedom to live somehow or other independently of him. And it is in response to this darkened perception that Jesus provides a fourfold uh, rebuttal. In verses 49 to 50, Jesus reveals something of his motives behind his self-disclosure. In verse 51, he claims to be conqueror over death. In 52 to 56, uh, he is greater than Abraham. In verse 57 to 59, we find here Jesus claiming to be the great uh, I am. Well, look at the first of these, Jesus' motives, as they they fill out something of his self-disclosure. Now, if someone constantly points to uh, himself, people will ask, what's his motive? Why, Why is he doing that? And certainly, Jesus throughout the gospel is pointing to himself. Indeed, one of the things that distinguishes Jesus from every other uh, world religious leader, be it Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius, is that he is constantly directing attention to himself and asking, who do people say that I am? Does that imply some kind of megalomania? No, of course not. Our actions and our words cannot be properly understood without access to our motives. I can give a large sum of money uh, to charity or devote hours of service to the needy, but if my motive is personal gain, an OBE or a, a knighthood, Sir Harry Melia has a particular ring to it, don't you think? Sir Harry Melia. Uh, then that is instantly devaluing all that I have done in the sight of God. Jesus' motive both for his mission and his exclusive claims is found in verse 49. 
It is to bring honor, to bring glory to the Father. Uh, You will remember that when contemplating the path of obedience uh, to the cross, while in Gethsemane, anticipating that event, uh, Jesus prayed, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. It is impossible to read the high priestly prayer of Jesus without being gripped by this fact. The passion of Jesus is the Father's glory. Now, the Jewish leaders were engaging in what psychiatrists today would call transference they were transferring their own motives to Jesus. He is self-absorbed. He hungers for human praise and recognition. Jesus is a glory hunter. This coming from the men of whom Jesus said, they long for the praise of men. They long for uh, human uh, adulation. Now, to attribute false motives to another dishonors both the person and their work. And Jesus says, notice, by attributing false motives to me, you dishonor both me and God, the righteous judge, who will glorify me. Verse 54 there. Notice the irony of their claim. It's found in the fact that rather than grasp after glory, Jesus humbled himself, clothed himself with our humanity, and set out in a collision course on the cross. In Philippians 2, uh, those of you who have been at our home groups have been studying this, have you not? We see that downward course of Jesus' voluntary humiliation. Down and down and down he goes, in response to which, as he reaches the nadir of that experience, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him. God, the righteous judge. This is what Jesus is saying here. I don't... I've let go of my glory. I'm not seeking it. It's my Father, the righteous judge, who can be trusted to glorify me. You will remember that on the cross, God's justice was satisfied, and their death was defeated, not by Christ on his own behalf, but as a representative of his people, he defeated death. He passed through death. That those who, if you like, held on to him by faith would also pass through death. And it's this thought that is the link to Jesus' claim in verse 51. I tell you the truth. And the force of the text here is, uh, this is an unshakable and an unassailable truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
Jesus is conqueror of death. And it's a remarkable claim. Its meaning is amplified earlier in the gospel in chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now, Jesus is speaking here of spiritual death. He is speaking of eternal separation from God. Recall God's words to Adam in Genesis 2.17. Perhaps you'll hear these again tonight or uh, on a future occasion. But God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, we know that Adam and Eve didn't die physically on the day that they ate of that fruit. But by their disobedience, they died spiritually. A death did take place that very day. And that spiritual reality was graphically displayed as they were uh, pushed out of the garden, the place where they knew fellowship with God. Fellowship was no more. They were separated. They were spiritually dead to God as a result of their disobedience. Sin separates from fellowship with God. It makes us dead to him. Paul, writing to uh, the Ephesians, uh, reminds them in chapter 2, verse 1, of their condition prior to their conversion. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was your spiritual state. Now, the essence of Jesus' ministry was to reconcile a sinful man with a holy God. And he did that by paying the penalty of sin. He, in Calvin's words, experienced our hell that we might experience his heaven. He experienced our separation, what we deserve, that we might experience reconciliation, that we might be brought near to God, members of the family and household of God, that we might, to use the words of John's Gospel, that we might pass over from death to life. Now, thirdly, notice here, Jesus' claim to have power over death infuriates the religious leaders who misunderstand his meaning and alter his words, verse 52, from seeing death to tasting death. Jesus' emphasis was on separation from God. Theirs was on the physical act of dying. Now, follow, if you will, their thought process. Clearly, Jesus is claiming to be greater than Abraham, the father of our faith, for Abraham didn't defeat death. 
you can visit Abraham's tomb. In fact, they might well have a little tour going, uh, you know, around the Holy Land. Come and see the sights. You can visit Abraham's tomb. You can visit the tombs of the prophets. Clearly, Jesus, by claiming to have power over death, is claiming to be greater than Abraham. And for them, that was like lighting the blue touch paper of their fury, for Abraham was the very foundation of their faith. How did Jesus respond to their misunderstanding? By making another remarkable claim. Jesus says, verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And Jesus here is talking of the historic past. He is pointing to a day some 2,000 years previously when Abraham's heart performed spiritual somersaults. When with the eye of faith, he made uh, some kind of faith connection with Jesus and his work. A faith stand that not only qualified Abraham, but all who exercised the same believing faith as he did to cross over from death to life. Well, to what incident is Jesus referring? What incident in Abraham's life? There are two main contenders. Uh, The first is linked with the great joy associated with the birth of Abraham's son Isaac around the child of promise, because all of God's other promises hinged upon the birth of his son, including the promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. But there is a second, and I believe more moving contender, uh, and it points to the day of Abraham's testing in Genesis 22. You will remember the story. Abraham, in obedience to God, uh, took his son Isaac up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Incidentally, the same mountain on which Jerusalem was to be built, the same mountain on which Jesus himself would be crucified. 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. Mount Moriah, that's where Jerusalem was built. Now, just as Abraham, you know the story, it's so familiar, just as Abraham was about to plunge the knife into Isaac, God stops him. Halt. And Abraham's attention is directed to the ram that was caught in the thorn bush. And that substitute was sacrificed in Isaac's place. Genesis 22 and 13 records all that's going on there. Now, from that, what important conclusion did Abraham draw? Well, we know that he named the place of sacrifice Jehovah Jireh. 
which means God will see to it or God will provide. And interestingly, Abraham does not use a past tense. He uses a future tense. He's not speaking about something that has just transpired, but something that will yet transpire in the future. He is pointing beyond his own recent experience to a future act of substitution. To a son given by a greater father. To a sacrifice who would die in his people's Stead the death that they deserved to die. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Do you see it? Now, how much gospel detail Abraham grasped, we can't tell with any degree of certainty. But surely enough, to do spiritual cartwheels, the cartwheels that Jesus is talking about here, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. The provision of a saviour. Now, by contrast, these leaders whose minds uh, are darkened didn't share the same spiritual insight as their ancestor Abraham They were too busy trying to squeeze uh, Jesus into some pigeonhole of their own making. They don't get it. And so we move on finally to see the way in which their perverse misunderstanding rises to the surface again in verse 57. The religious leaders uh, assume that Jesus meant that Oh, 2,000 or so years ago, he had a coffee with Abraham or an equivalent meeting. Uh, That was in the distant past. And the reply to Jesus, come on, Jesus, you don't even look 50 years old, never mind 2,000. What a ridiculous thing to say. And it is this misunderstanding of what Jesus had said that sets the scene for a claim that takes even their considerable breath away. Verse 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am. This is surely one of the clearest claims to divinity found on the lips of Jesus. He's not claiming merely to pre-exist Abraham. He is using an Old Testament title for God, the great I am, to describe himself, to describe himself. Now, our understanding of the biblical names of God is enriched by seeing the context in which they were originally given. What then is the context for God's great self-disclosure as being the I am? 
Well, we need to turn to Exodus 3 in verse 14. You will remember, God encounters Moses in the desert at the burning bush and he commissions uh, Moses to return to Egypt and to deliver uh, Israel from captivity. But why should they listen to a failed deliverer of 40 years previously? A man who was probably still in Egypt's most wanted list. Why should they listen uh, to him? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Eternally God. And if that means anything, it means eternally consistent in covenant faithfulness to my people. Nothing would be allowed to frustrate God's plan of redemption for his people from Egypt. And so Moses is told, go to the Israelites and say, I am has sent me to you. And so this is a name that was given to God's oppressed and enslaved people as they stood on the very threshold of deliverance. The context, you see, is one of redemption. And so, Jesus' claim to be the great I am is unambiguous in its meaning as he stands on the threshold of a greater work of redemption, poised to deliver his people from their bondage to sin by means of a substitutionary act of atonement, leading them from death to life. He does so not as a mere human deliverer, but as the Redeemer God as the Redeemer God. It is a monumental self-disclosure that is in view here. These verses, of course, are preparing us for Jesus' greatest act of self-disclosure. The cross would become the signpost in human history that speaks of that greatest act of disclosure and greatest display of Christ's glory. It is interesting, I wonder if you've noticed this, that of all the gospel writers, John alone omits to record the events that took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. You will remember on the Mount when Peter and James and John saw the veiled glory of Jesus breaking through out of his humanity in quite indescribable brilliance, so much so that the gospel writers are struggling to find adequate language to describe the glory that was seen on the mount. Now, you might expect John, uh, whose gospel is intent upon charting the self-disclosure of Jesus, to give prominence to this event, but he passes it by. 
He doesn't mention it. Why? Why do you think? Because for John, the place of Jesus' greatest self-disclosure, the place where the curtains were well and truly going to be pulled back for all to see, the place where the glory of Christ would be seen to be both mind-staggering and heart-humbling, was the cross of Christ. It is the terminus of Jesus' self-disclosure here on earth as far as John is concerned. Here is the greatest unveiling of the love and the mercy and the justice of God. Here is the signpost that is foremost in human history. And it reads, this is your God. This is your God. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become or be clothed in the righteousness of God. Now, the self-disclosure of Jesus in our passage here is like a, a brief overture to the, to the great uh, orchestral work of what is about to take place upon the cross, this display of glory. But what happened? Well, Jesus' self-disclosure is designed and was ever designed to provoke response. And what is the response that we find in our passage? Verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him the Jewish leaders were enraged by what they saw as blasphemy. Jesus has placed himself outside of the framework of their petty human categories. But something else is motivating them. You see, divine revelation always works in two directions. It not only reveals who God is, but by doing so, it leaves man with a heightened sense, not only of his own creaturehood, but of his own sinfulness. Do you remember how Peter responded to Jesus after the miraculous landing of fish? And he came to him and said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. The revelation of Christ's glory the awareness of Peter's deep sinfulness. Or what of the great prophet Isaiah when he entered the temple and had this display of God's glory? No one would have expected Isaiah to say, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. God's glory, his sinfulness, illuminated and humbled by it. But the religious leaders weren't humbled. They were hardened. We're told they loved darkness rather than light. Revelation never leaves us the same. It provokes response. 
It either hardens and drives us from God or it humbles us and draws us uh, to him. And it deepened the hatred of the religious leaders. And that almost broke Jesus' heart. Do you remember the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life as he made his way up to Jerusalem? What he said of that city and those who inhabited it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. You were not willing. These very people who were lifting up the stones were not willing. This driving away and drawing power of Jesus Uh, through his self-disclosure, is seen throughout this gospel. Uh, Graphically again, in John 6, you will remember Jesus had planted the signpost miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and then in his teaching he had unveiled the truth, I am the bread of life, the source of spiritual sustenance. And then he had expounded the significance of that. And after that, exposition. We read in verse 60, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? And then in verse 66, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and he said, will you also go away? Are you going to jump onto that bandwagon? And Peter, with remarkable insight, replied, Lord, where else can we go? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter is saying, in response to what you have disclosed, we can see no meaningful alternative but to trust in the provision that you have made. This faith response to Jesus' self-disclosure is picked up in chapter 8, verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. A similar pattern of words is found in verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What does it mean to hold Christ's teaching, to keep Christ's words? Well, first of all, it certainly means to hear with understanding what Jesus is saying. And that involves the significance of what has been said, to register on the blackboards of our minds so that we see it. But it also involves committing ourselves wholeheartedly to what we've heard. And understood. This is so important. Let me try to illustrate it. In the 19th century, Charles Blondin, the French tightrope artist, he drew vast crowds as he transported 
uh, people across the Niagara Falls on a wheelbarrow. And when he was visited by the then Prince of Wales, uh, Blondin asked one of the prince's companions, do you believe that I could carry you across the falls? Of course, said the companion, I've just seen you do it. I've witnessed you carry uh, someone across. Well, said Blondin, jump into the wheelbarrow and I'll take you across. And the man's face blanched and he said, there's no way you're going to get me into that wheelbarrow. He believed intellectually in Blondin's ability but he wasn't prepared to commit his safety into his hands. That's what Jesus is looking for, that kind of commitment. This morning, how do you respond to Jesus' self-disclosure? Does it harden or humble your heart? Does it drive you from him Or does it draw you, irresistibly draw you to him? Does it make him weep over you? Or is it the cause of great joy? You may not yet be a believer this morning. Jesus comes to you through his word and he draws back the curtains And he says, this is who I am. This is me. And this is why I have come. That you might pass from death to life. Will you step into the wheelbarrow? Will you trust yourself to my safe hands? Think about it this morning. Dare we do anything else? Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we do humble ourselves before you this morning and marvel at your condescension, at the lengths to which you go to make yourself known to us, to reveal not only who you are and what you require of us, but what Jesus has done so uniquely for us upon the cross that we might pass from death to life. We pray that his self-disclosure through his word might draw our hearts unerringly to himself, that they might humble our hearts in your presence as we wait before the great I am Redeemer. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.